0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, I'm Sai and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation and this is Series 2 of our revamped and new luck mental health in sports series. In this series we're focusing specifically on footballers. We'll be talking to current and ex-footballers about uh, difficulties that they've suffered with mental health, addiction and similar subjects. In the current climate of the world, I feel like talking about mental health issues is more important than ever uh, as this ever-changing world that we live in. ...is going. Uh, These shows are going to be open and an honest account of some of the issues faced by these athletes at the height of their career and after. Uh, So we look forward to hearing their stories. Uh, Ace Podcast Nation, we're home to many great shows and guests uh, featuring exclusive interviews, top guests, expert analysts and more. So uh, follow for video versions at youtube.com slash acepodcastnation and the audio version at all the usual places for podcasts and radio platforms. Uh, The links for which are in below. Uh, Okay, with no further ado, joining me for each episode is someone who's appeared on the channel a few times before. Uh, He's back again to help us talk to the guests and spread awareness for mental health. I'm very happy to welcome my co-host, mental health support worker, Jacob, back to the channel. Welcome, my friend. How are you?
1: Yeah, not too bad
0: yourself? I'm all right, buddy. All right. (laughs) I'm going to just move that. Sorry. Because I was looking like I was about four foot tall. So our guest for today's episode is uh, former Wales international, ex-Swansea, Bristol City, Wigan Athletic and current Barry Town winger, Mr David Cottrell. How are you, David? I'm very well. How are you guys? All, all good, mate. Welcome back. Obviously, you were on the uh, the Andy Campbell show recently where we had a good talk about uh, the football side of your career. Um, and I know you've talked a lot about mental health since you've sort of... Uh, you haven't retired because you're still playing for uh, Barry, obviously, but since you're sort of w- winding down your career, should we say, uh, including starting up the David Cottrell Foundation, which uh, obviously helps people with uh, issues and things like this, we'll, we'll most definitely get, back, uh, get into that towards the end of the show. But uh, first of all, what I want to do uh, is, for people who are maybe not familiar with you, is uh, yeah. kind of give them just a quick background in, in your own words about you, your upbringing and uh, your kind of career
2: um how long do you want it to be because i could be here all day by the way yeah no just a (laughs) general
0: just a general thing of you know you and 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 your upbringing and Um, and where you go
2: yeah so so my upbringing was you know fine i was you know i brought up on on a council estate um i started playing football from a very young age from the age of six um i got first got picked up by bristol city when i was 10 years of age so i was pretty much into a professional environment from a very young age and you know, seeing your friends or, if you like, teammates at a young age, you know, getting shown reject- rejection, and you're fighting for contracts, you're fighting for places from, you know, such a young age. And as I mentioned before, adult life, we don't like rejection, etc. So you can imagine the environment that creates with with the younger kids. Um, and so, you know, from a, probably around about my teenage years, I um, dealt with a lot of mental health problems, which I didn't discuss about until probably two years ago when i was 30 um and i made my first professional debut when i was 16 for bristol city then i made my professional debut uh, my international debut for wales at the age of 17 so quite quickly from a young age a lot of things were, were happening and um so yeah that's a little bit of my background do you want me to go into any more no, detail um
0: no that's okay for now i mean as a you know as a professor you mentioned there as kids about rejection obviously as a professional athlete. Uh, particularly a footballer it's there's so many ups and downs like one week you can be a hero the next week you're a villain um that's got to be it's going to be difficult to deal with as a as an adult particularly with social media and you know this type of thing and, and the media generally they love to be negative uh, particularly about footballers and young footballers who are you know are doing well they love to drag them down uh, this creates an incredible amount of pressure for for young players young athletes um just before I go to that with you, David, Jacob, you know, obviously you work with footballers and football clubs. What, um, what sort of things are these players dealing
1: with, like from
0: a pressure point of view and the highs and lows?
1: Well, I think like from when David started his career compared to sort of young players, even now you're noticing some clubs are on top of, look, let's talk about mental health, let's talk about social media, all that stuff. Back when David was in, I imagine they did nothing at Bristol City about mental health or no. social media or anything like that. So I think the pressure compared is is massive. You know, we I spoke to a youth player at Bristol Warriors and said, you know, how long have you been in the youth setup? And he was like eight years old uh, and he was sixteen. I said, well, what happens if you don't make it to uh, get your first pro contract? He was like. Bit shit, really. (laughs) Like I've I've done all this work, and it's basically back to square one. But I'm like sort of seven years behind all my friends. And I think that sort of non-preparing these youth players is still a problem in the game. And I think definitely sort of you're noticing now, sort of David's era of footballers, they're sort of there's nothing there. I suppose for when the players are coming out into retirement you can see from early stages the same, you know, James Coppinger has talked about his early career. He sort of thrust into sort of the limelight, same as David was, uh, in the national squad. And there's no support. then. we're seeing it now, uh, through people like David sharing their experiences, it's helping the youth players, but if it wasn't for sort of these pros coming out and sharing their stories, where would we be? Because I don't think there's enough support out there, especially for youth players, uh, if it wasn't for these amazing pros coming out and sharing their sport, the experiences, because it's just not there, really.
0: Yeah, I um, I spoke to a sports psychologist on one of my really early shows. It was technically series one of this uh, series, Mental Hub and Sport, and she said her job was spe- specifically to deal with 16, 17, 8-year-old boys who've been in the youth academy systems since they were very young, and then all of a sudden at 17... they're they're told, oh, we don't want you anymore. You 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 haven't got a career. And they've put so much into their football that that's all they're going to be. They kind of have suffered in school. They haven't really done that well in their GCSEs. And they've got just this feeling of doom as if their life Mm -hmm. is over. Now, obviously, us as adults know that, you know, you can reset your GCSEs and you can go and do this and that. But, like, even when I was in school... It was told to you, like the GCSEs, they were the end of the world. If you failed them, that was it. You were done. You were never, ever going to get a job. You were never going to succeed. And, you know, I'm sure it's a bit different now. But for a for a, a, a boy who's been in an, an academy system all his childhood and then be told he's not good enough, that's very difficult. Um, OK, so, David, with these, with this series, what we want to do is we're getting obviously different guests, current and and past footballers, and we're basically just asking them to tell their story in their own words, uh, kind of bit by bit, and then me and Jacob will kind of ask questions along the way. Um, So you mentioned you had um, some sort of mental health problems in your teenage years. Um, Was that, purely like a kind of like mental health thing or was that with obviously you've talked about your issues with alcohol later in your career um was those early issues that you mentioned there more of like the mental health side than the drinking
2: yeah it was just purely mental health I didn't used to um well from a young age as I say from the age of six you know if I wasn't having a football at my feet my dad would tell me well why are you not practicing why are you not doing this and so from a very young age I even from like the age of ten, I I wasn't able to go, you know, down the park and, and be with my mates. Or when I'm twelve, thirteen they would go and have a drink and like most teenagers they get into yeah, yeah. a little bit of trouble or whatever it was. Whereas I didn't have that. I didn't really ha I wouldn't say that I had much of a childhood past the age of ten and eleven because my main focus was purely on being a professional footballer. And I think Jacob just mentioned just uh, earlier on there where You know, there's no education and you should have maybe a plan B. But for me, I didn't want a plan B because I Mm. knew I was going to succeed as a footballer. And I didn't want the plan B because that was all my focus was. Um, So I purely put my determination and my focus all into that. I do believe there should be education along the way now. um, And and there should have been back then as well. It just, um, unfortunately, it wasn't. And I still feel that we're still playing a lot of catch up now because I think um 10%. i I put like a little random thing on my Instagram the other day, I had a meeting with my foundation, we we're thinking about what can we do or whatever. And um I posted something on my on my story and I said, In your workplaces, um, who's been getting mental health support or of their bosses asked how they're doing to do with mental health um since since COVID has kicked in and eighty three percent of the people Ben I've got like 39,000 followers on Instagram so, out of the people who viewed that and the ones who voted, there's 83% said that they haven't had support. That's so, incredible. so and but and a that... lot of and a lot of footballers have answered and and put their thoughts on that as well. Um, but not just in football, but most industries, they're all like doing tick box exercise. With, mm. Oh, yeah, we're supporting men's health, but they're not. They're not really. They're like all these commercial things that they post on social media and they do this and do that with the support their players, they're not doing fuck all. So I don't... Uh, I'm not having it one bit. They, they like to perceive that they're doing something, but they're, they're not really. Um, yeah. But going, going back to my story... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's all about me today. No, I'm just... Uh, so, yeah, I... um with my probably from an early age, I was always searching for perfection, um, and so I think that's where the troubles were. That's where the troubles related to. From a, even up to like, you know, probably like two, three years ago, I was always, always searching for perfection.
0: Did um, that sort of obviously that determination which you mentioned about not really wanting a plan B is obviously that's part of the reason you were able to succeed and become a professional footballer and play international football because you need that in you know you need that determination you need that focus um but do you think that sort of striving for for, for perfection sorry I couldn't get my words out uh, cool. from such a young age where you're you know you're you're competing against other boys you're you know you want to get signed by the club you want to play in the first team etc do you think that um that need to constantly be almost perfect that puts pressure on your mental health straight away because you're you're always kind of it's like a hyper focus on being mm-hmm. The best all the time, that must put like a bit of a strain on things like anxiety and depression and things. If you know, especially if you have a bad game or you know you, you things don't feel right in training for a week or two, and uh, you're, at that young age, you're not mentally mature enough to deal with that sort of uh, the, you know the pressure to be. I, I keep using the word perfect, but that's what footballers and young footballers, that's what they're striving for that's got to be very difficult to deal with.
2: Yeah, it is. I think, well, from like an early age, with as I say, you know, if I look at the, the generation that's come through now and I've got a teenage son, I sometimes have the discussions and, you know, he had the ideas of being a footballer without putting the work in. Um, he never used to practice. I think he just liked the idea of, oh, well, you know, footballers got nice cars, they got this, they got that. But it takes a lot of effort to become that successful. That Even, you know, even to play at League 2, League 1 level, it takes a lot of determination and a lot of sacrifices to get there. Um, you know, and I think from the times that I look at him, to the, the pressures that I had as a child is l- completely different whereas mm. the pressures that I put on him is literally that, well, I want you to be respectful, you need to be home on time or you need to do certain things um, yeah. whereas my, mine was purely if you don't practice, you're not going to, well, you, I didn't have, I didn't go out with my mates, very rarely did I go out with my mates. I always have to I was always practicing for hours if not I was traveling from Cardiff to Bristol to train.
0: Yeah. You made me feel guilty because that's what I do to my son. This is but <laughs> yeah you know, like but from my point of view like just very quickly with him is I'm like he's in like an academy system and he wants to he's at 15 now so he's getting to that yeah. age where it's going to be either they want you or they don't. So I'm trying to instill on him that he needs to practice, he needs to train. And you've got to, if you want to do this, you've got to sacrifice going out with your mates because otherwise you can't do both. Um, and at the moment it's going smoothly, but we'll see. <laughs> um, but like I say, um, it's about you today, David. So um, looking back with hindsight, when do you think um, your issues sort of progressed to a point where they were, you know, they were a, a problem? Oh, actually, no, sorry. When do you did your looking back with hindsight when did your issues with sort of drinking and that sort of thing start
2: um well going back to well just before that like when i was 13 14 i knew i had like anger problems where i was always like i was self-harm where i'd i smash my studs okay. against my shins because i thought well i could always cover that that up because i was training three or four mm. times a week and I, and I was playing games it's normal for for players to have scars on their shins because yeah. they're always into tackles, so I thought I could get away with it and no one would question me. So if things didn't go right, I just smashed my boots against my my shins for a little bit, and so I always had that anger anger problems where I didn't rectify those um, those problems or situations, and so that materialised later on. Um, but I think my drinking my drinking I started drinking and going out a little bit more when I was nineteen, but I would say it was probably a lot more in full flow when I was at maybe Doncaster when
1: I was about 23, 24. Okay. So do you you think your, like your drink was a form of like self-medication for like your struggles with mental health? Um, well I was going
2: through, you know, I had a a relationship that I didn't want to be in at that time. I was going then going through a divorce. And the thing is, is that when you go through a divorce in, in normal working society, you feel like you have support. Um, but having a divorce and then you go into to play games and you've got then fans, you know, you're, if you're having a bad game, they're abusing you and then you go and then mm. you're on social media, then they're abusing you, then this and all that. So you're having to, you're going to work having shit, you're then going home to shit because you don't want to be with that person, you're going through a divorce. Uh, and then and when the children are involved, then you're not allowed to see your children, you're travelling up mm. and down the motorway because your ex is stopping you from seeing your kids and, and blah, blah, blah. And you have to deal with all that bollocks. Then to go in, to perform at a high level to get your team promoted and obviously because that's a big goal of obviously the team and yourself and, and blah 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 so you having to maintain the levels of, of consistency with your profession but then having to deal with not seeing your kids so it is very difficult mm-hmm. um, I don't think a lot of people take that into consideration they kind of feel that football is a robot nothing affects them they're above the law they've got all this X amount of money and they don't have no feelings
0: yeah like speaking as a, as a father um, I know Well, we're all fathers um, and also uh, knowing I've got a couple of close friends who are not able to see their children at the moment and it's absolutely destroying them. Um, and obviously with the way the world is now, they're very isolated because of COVID and things like this. But when you add that to, like you said, the pressure of having to perform, but not just performing your job, it's performing in professional sport where you've got thousands of fans screaming at you, telling you how they can do it better basically telling you you're rubbish telling you you know you're not trying and all this different stuff that that footballers have to put up with on a weekly basis um that's got to be difficult and there's got to be a a release to get away from that and like your situation you said you're having the problems you're having at home you had you were drinking you were also then having a lot of shit from fans uh, social media is just a cesspool, as we all know, of uh, of just faceless people saying whatever they want. Um, so at that point, were you kind of just drinking because of all that? Or was it more like, like I mean, in the moment, rather than looking back in hi- at hindsight, was it more of like, oh, I'm just going to go out and have a few beers because of everything, I just want to get away from it and have a few beers? Or was, at that point, were you kind of like, you just wanted to drink to get through it and forget?
2: Um, It was probably a a bit of both. At first I started off Well, I'm now single, where I was in a relationship from a very early age and um, I had um, children very young. So I didn't really have experience that kind of single life as a young footballer coming through and doing what they needed to do to, you know, the usual antics of going out, seeing girls, whatever it might be. So kind of like my, I was a delayed kind of like six, seven years with that. Yeah. So initially we were starting to go out, drink, girls, that sort of stuff. Um, and then I felt amazing on when I was drinking. Like most people, when people drink, they kind of like forget what they're thinking about and they feel in a bubble where they feel yes. indestructible for that time. And I was never one of these people that I could go out and have one or two drinks and go home. It was literally right. I'm staying out till I'm absolutely steaming, and I, and even, even then, I look back and it kind of. St- I wouldn't say it's it's a perfection kind of trait, but I was just never happy with anything. You know, there'd be loads of times that I was speaking to my cousin actually about this the other day. He's like, you know, you used to go out and you weren't, you'd still not be happy if we went home about five, six a.m. in the morning. I'm like thinking. I was just never happy. I was never wanted the night to stop. I was always searching for more and yeah. more and more. So it was just like, it's kind of like the same thing, you know, probably in, in the younger days of me looking for perfection, always searching for something better.
0: Yeah, and I guess, like, part of the contribution to that is that you were, you didn't experience going out and doing all that stuff as a young footballer when you were 18, 19, 20, you know, first breaking into the Welsh team and playing professional football. That is going to have a kind of impact on that because you didn't get to do those single-life football, footballer things. You know, it's, it's part of growing up, isn't it? But you obviously, at that time, rather than going through it at a young age and growing up and kind of doing it, you were doing it when you had a lot of stress and a lot of pressure on you from from all angles. It sounds like. Um, what was your career like uh, going like at that point in terms of um, the form and you know and just generally?
2: Yeah, probably from like the uh, from an early age of you know sixteen to when I went to Wigan. Everything everything was plain sailing. I was literally living the dream. I set out to. I worked extremely hard. I made some huge sacrifices to be a professional footballer. Everything was good my parents um you know were always supporting me always there for me um it was just you know i i think probably looking back from an early age i i, I had a little bit of resentment towards my dad i think just because i couldn't when he he was always bang on about from like a, a young age of even like eight nine years of age you, you know you you'd you'd ask me questions i wouldn't even know it's kind of like well why did you play shit today? And I'm like thinking, well, n- no one wakes up and walks out the door thinking, right, I'm just going to be a shit person today and make loads of mistakes. So I didn't really have the answers because no <laughs> yeah. one could have the answers as an adult, really. And it was just always purely about that. So when I made as a professional footballer, I felt like a little bit of resentment thinking, do you know what? You can't say nothing to me now because mm-hmm. you want to be a footballer and you didn't make it, but I have. So I'm the professional now, so you need to listen to me. So I kind of like had that mindset of, of that way. And it's probably a stupid mindset because you know, he put a lot of um, time and effort into me. You know, when I wanted to practice, he would take me down the local field. He would take me out and just practice and work on my left foot shooting, my right foot shooting. So he put a lot of time into me and you know, he's my biggest, biggest critic, but I'm probably my biggest fan as well. So it was kind of like, you know, that's just the way it was. Um, and you do need that. I'm not purely focusing on, you know, the reason why I had mental health issues is because of that. I'm just saying the pressures from a young age is very mm. difficult. And uh, yeah. you know, I'm not, not blaming him for that, um, all of it, of course. I'm not, you know, I need to take in, um, some blame on it as well. But when I when I did make as a pro, I didn't think that I had the right support when I went to Wigan. Um, it's kind of like the agency, my agent there, as I, I think I spoke to you about it last time, was, yeah. was Cyril Regis, and he was an amazing person. I at all the time in the world for him he's a great guy and I just felt like the agency group itself that they had so many players and didn't really necessarily care about them as individuals they were kind of like we're all on a conveyor belt mm. so um, so that's why I decided to leave that agency I didn't really there was good people at Wigan but I didn't feel that I had the great support there. I don't think things were in place then really to support players with mm. the, the mental health now that they, they were feeling it's kind of like well you know you need a house so we'll show you around houses and that's it um so there's nothing from a standpoint of like how you're going to perform on the pitch or how you, not on on the pitch necessarily, but maybe how you're feeling off the pitch. Um, so there's no support there that I felt personally. And then it went later on, and then when I was at, um, and you know, I moved around a bit. I had Kevin Blackwell at Sheffield United, which you know, if you're talking about mental health, he's probably the last person that I would never go and speak to someone like him anyway, because I just didn't like him. And then when I went to Doncaster, it was kind of like. My drinker was in full flow, but we were pushing for promotion. I was scoring or assisting every week. So that kind of, I was playing really, really well, made team of of the year that year. We got promoted. So I kind of felt like indestructible. I'm thinking, well, I'm getting steaming almost every other night (laughs) and and we're winning and I'm scoring goals and I'm performing. So why stop that formula kind of thing? So (laughs) um, I got back in the Welsh squad when I was out of the squad for a couple of years. So I was thinking, why should I change anything?
1: what was the moment so in our sort of work we talk about a stress bucket so everyone has a stress bucket and all these things imagine your bucket and each bit of stress will fill that bucket up and every bucket will have like a little tap at the bottom if we open that tap it relieves that stress but sometimes if we don't relieve this that tap by doing things like exercise mindfulness stuff like that it will overflow what was your moment was it at Doncaster where you know maybe the troubles with sort of The divorce, the drinking. What was the moment where it all sort of tipped out and you thought, okay, we've got an issue here?
2: Um, I think probably, you know, the divorce. I I dealt with the divorce and the issues of the shit of like trying to deal with my kids Mm. and just all that for for many years, even after the divorce, you know, the toxic relationship still continues. Um, That's where I do disagree with the, the law in the UK, whereas how is it okay for. I, I believe, personally, that more often than not, there's a high percentage that the women are allowed to um, use kids as more as, like, pawns in a game yeah, and use them as a weapon against kind of like the guys where they're trying to just gain access. Where I, co- I think that causes a, a huge amount of mental health problems. So, um, yeah, I, I I think probably... The divorce. I was happy to have the divorce. So I didn't want to be with it. I just wanted I to see my kids and have a normal relationship with my kids. Which, um, you know, I. Was, it was just always one thing after another. You know, it was just it was just a pain in the ass for many years, and having to do that, and then obviously with with football wise. But I. The thing with the football thing is that I love the pressure. I love the abuse during the game. When I used to take a corner, and they were like, "Oh, you! haven't going to hair. your shot. Your head is like a you know a light bulb shining." Whatever they might have said probably in a lot more stronger terms than what I've just said there but um, I used to love all that because I'm thinking as soon as I score a goal I'm coming straight over to you and giving it back to you
0: yeah I funny enough I was um, sat in a corner when you were warming up for Swansea versus Cardiff and um the, some of the stuff that the guy come on behind... Cy, what did
1: you say to him I,
0: well, I was with my <laughs> missus and I was because I wasn't I you know I was a bit more mature by then and I was what did she bitter. say to him <laughs> but uh, these two guys behind some of the stuff they were saying and like you were, like, f- five foot away from us, so, you know, you could hear everything. And I was just, I was gobsmacked by some of the stuff they were saying. Like, I get that there's going to be a bit of abuse and stuff, mm. but some of the stuff, it was like, wow. And one of them had their kid, like, a little kid with them as well, and I was just like, Jesus. But you, to be fair to you, you just laughed. Because I do think- you know
2: what? I used to just laugh that off, but do you know what? One So... It was quite mad. So when I played for Sheffield United against Cardiff, I used to take all the set pieces. So I was on when I was at Sheffield United, I was like nineteen twenty. So I was even on penalty duty, quite you know, straight away really. So I stepped up, mm. took a few penalties. Then we played against Cardiff at Old um, Cardiff City Stadium, Ninian Park, and um, so I scored. So I obviously celebrated in front of our Sheffield United fans and with my teammates because we were pushing for promotion. We were a big club in that division and blah blah blah, and. I literally had so much abuse off that. It was insane. And, you know, I remember people... I, I was thinking, well, what do they want me to do? Do they want me yeah. to miss a penalty then against my hometown club for me to then not play the next game and me sacrifice the food mm. put on the table for my kids mm. for you just to go and cheer that you've won a game? Yeah. So um, I I couldn't understand it. And after that game, I, I think I went away with Wales, I think. I can't remember, but I was away from my my wife and my child at the family and, and my my wife and my little one at the time. And, um, you know, we were having threats of, you know, people, oh, we know where you live. We know that you're away on international duty. We know that your wife and kid are alone, blah, blah, blah. And I was like nineteen twenty at that age. That's
0: has got to be a horrifying,
2: just, isn't it? And it's just madness. Obviously, you know, you're thinking, well, at the time you're thinking, oh, my God, the worst is going to happen. But, you know, it's, it's not it's really. Just... Um, but but when you're young... away,
0: though, it, makes, it must make it worse because... You're not... The, like, it's one thing being at home and getting that type of threat and you kind of are able to kind of say, like, oh, yeah, it's just football fans yeah, like, sending yeah, shit like, whatever. Okay, but, yeah. but when it's you're just, away, it's mad. all you've got is sat in a hotel room, I'd imagine, just with your mind running away with itself, really, about uh, different stuff. Like that's, And that's another type of pressure, which I think I think that type of pressure goes very under the radar for in terms of what people think about pressures on athletes, particularly mm-hmm. footballers, uh, is everyone knows when they're away from home, so they're going to be worried about their their wives, their children, and you know how many times a year do we see about burglaries in uh, footballers' houses where they've you know there's been armed robbers go in and, and steal everything or whatever that like that's another added aspect of pressure. Um, so obviously you got promoted with Doncaster, you were drinking a lot, but but career wise things were going pretty well. When did you get to a point where you think shit, my drinking's getting a bit of a problem now?
2: I think at Doncaster I was I knew that I was out quite a lot, but because I was performing I thought, do you know what it's fine and um but I just felt like alone really. Like when I felt Anything. I was just always drinking, and then that would be like my self medicating. Where I was thinking, mm. you know what? I'm just thinking of have a few drinks. Then, it was, as I mentioned before, it'd never just be one or two drinks. It would always end up me steaming and so on and blah blah blah. But I think probably, you know, I always had that probably reputation throughout my career of being a little bit, little bit of a loose cannon, and he lo- and he loves a night out. You know, amount of managers they used to say to me after I retired, saying, no, "Oh." we were looking at you to sign you, but you're, you used to love a little cheeky night out, but now we mm. know why, because obviously since your story. But so I'm thinking, and since I've retired, I've thought about this. I'm thinking, well, if you're a football club and you've got a guy who's coming in more often than not, you can smell alcohol on them, when is the time that you intervene to say, well, we're going to help you? Yeah. But it was, it was never that it was never that to intervene and help me from that perspective. It was always kind of like, right. You smell of alcohol today you can stay inside and do a second day of recovery to stay in the gym because we don't want the manager to smell alcohol on you it was never kind of like do you think we should get you some help or help you as a human it was kind of like right still we want to make sure that we hold our jobs to make the yeah, manager like
0: sweep it under the rug Back- almost yeah
2: Back- backside basically yeah sweep it under the rug and then because that's the thing in football it's kind of like it's always like you know, the, the physios or the doctors, not necessarily the doctors because they're employed by the club, that's different anyway, but like the physios or the coaches, they're always kind of like stick with the manager because they're thinking, well, if we stick with the manager and he goes to a new job, we need to make sure mm-hmm. we're, you know, tired yeah. of them. So, um, from that perspective, it was kind of like, well, you know, I never really got help from my addiction side with my drinking um, and that, I, and it was, you know, I, it was a big issue for me, definitely at Birmingham, I think. That's when it really, really got out of control because, you know, I was, I was going home, I was um, smashing up things in my house on a regular basis. So I, I remember this one time it was my friend's 30th birthday. I went out and we had training the next day, and I smashed my fist through a, a mirror, and literally my bone was popping out of my knuckle, and I woke up the next day. I thought I'm just going go to go sleep, and then part of me was thinking, well, I hope I, don't, I hope I don't wake up because I don't want to be alive anyway, so it was like all mm-hmm. these mad stuff scenarios that were going through my mind. And so I woke up the next day, the bed sheets were completely covered. The bill I had for the cleaning up bill after that was quite big as well. So I, I thought, forget it, doesn't matter, i got to go training. So I just literally, I went to training and I'm, and it was about 17, 18 degrees at that time as well. And I, I had to wear gloves. I put gloves on just to hide that I was, mm. you know, the blood was still streaming and so on. And then I seen the physio after, I said, look, my hands. I didn't want to tell you before training because I didn't want you to think that I was out drinking, but I fell down the stairs. I didn't, I was out drinking. So I was just like, he said, Why have you just trained with that? You should know that's dangerous or whatever it might have been, and blah blah blah. blah. So I then had to see the doctor to stitch you up after that. Um, so they were kind of like the incidents that were just like more and more creeping in, and I was just, it was just getting worse and worse and worse.
0: Was that the first time you had lied about drinking, or had you lied about <laughs> like drinking before that? I just, oh, I I'm interested I, because I, I me... always used to lie about it. I always yeah. used to lie
2: about the drinking. I, I, I used to, if, if I used to go out and I, you know, you go, like most guys, like, let's be honest, if most guys go to the local local pub and their missus at home um, going absolutely berserk, and you said you're only going to go down, oh, yeah, honestly, I got is. chatting, babe. I was only had two drinks, and then before, no, you haven't. You've had about eight, and you're yeah. steaming, and you're just trying to stand there all just like,
1: yeah, like, yeah, hold the conversation. About yeah, I suppose that's the alcoholic with most alcoholics. I know when they're in that madness of drinking all the time, it can be. You know, it's the hiding the beers, hiding... But also, they can make these amazing, you know, oh, no, it's because of this or because of that, or that's why, you know, and it's all these...
0: I, I always used to be able to... I could find a reason to go out and why I'd stayed out all night. I was always able to come up with, like, a plausible excuse. So, like, to me, anyway it was like there was a reason why I'd be gone out at six o'clock for a quick pint or what I used to do very often is I was working in gilesports sports at the time um, and I would get the train back and I'd get off the train and there was a pub right at the train station. I go, I'll have, have a beer while I wait for my lift. And then I would come in like six o'clock in the morning the next day, get showered and go to work. And quite often I drink before work and like, but I could always, I'd always have an excuse, always have a reason. Um, yeah. But anyway, um i think it's the british
1: culture like we drink when someone gets married we drink when someone has a baby we drink when there's a funeral we drink when someone gets a job that's that normal culture but i suppose when you put in that alcoholic or addictive nature into anyone it ramps it up and i suppose with you it's that trying to hide when it was at its worst because some bits from your coaches or from uh the team so you can still get in and do the job but um Did, did like sort of family members notice stuff?
2: Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of, um, you know, my dad would say, you know, you're drinking a lot and because my dad would normally drink, you know, from a very early, I don't remember my dad not drinking.
1: Mm.
2: He drinks every night of the week and I'm 32 now and I can't remember him not having a drink every single night. And it's not like one or two. He's, you know, eight to 10 pints a night. Guaranteed. Um, Mm. And he's an alcoholic, which I've, exp- you know, it took him for me to educate him that he's an alcoholic. Mm. And I had to, you know, he would admit that, you know, yeah, I've I got, a, I depend on alcohol every day. Whereas my mum was in denial because my mum would like, well, alcoholics are someone who has a bottle of vodka next to their bed. They wake mm. up in the middle of the night, they neck it, then they're up in the morning, then they drink it before work, then they're doing this and doing that. There's different forms of alcoholism, mm. but people don't understand that it's an illness. It's like, how you before, how you react
1: or how you perform basically when you're drinking this stuff yeah and so, there's so many functional alcoholics if you look in like the entertainment industry there's loads that can keep their job they can go to work uh, but they're still drinking either at work and they can put the persona on you know look at Gaza you know he was able to do amazing things while still drinking yeah right. and it's just, it's
2: just obviously eventually it's caught up with him and mm. his addiction side of things mm. but like my dad is a functional alcoholic. He don't he don't miss a day of work in his life. He he'll wake up at six a.m. bang on the button. He he, he won't be late for anything. So mm. he, he that's just the way he is. But you know he did mention you know you're you're an athlete. You're drinking a lot and blah blah. But I just thought well, I just felt indestructible. I felt like I could do what I want when I wanted to, and no one could mm. tell me any different. Um, but I remember, you know, at Birmingham we always had that culture when we used to go away with Wales. You know we would always have a drink afterwards when we were in different countries. We would, you know, we were on a great form there. So we more, more often than not, we were winning games. So we'd go out, celebrate, we would, you know, we'd obviously have security guards where we'd close down certain areas of bars or clubs or whatever it might have been. So we would have a free reign and access to do what we wanted. So, and then, you know, with Birmingham, it was, I was, I'd go out uh, in, some nights and I'd be having a party and having a, I was having like a shot at the with the chief executive like, or you know and, and things like that and then everything's alright then because you're performing when you're winning when I was losing I was like saying I obviously had the views but I like said cops you're out a bit too much at the moment I was thinking I'm out less now than I was mm-hmm. before yeah. but it was okay when we were winning because you know I was having a shot with the chief exec blah yeah, blah blah yeah. um, and, and then I remember there was only one time that i drank before before a game and um, I probably don't like to admit it, but I was at a Justin Bieber concert. And so uh, I was there and Troy Deeney has sent me a picture with him and Gary Rowan. And I've seen, oh, no, nah, you're, having, you're, you're having me on because they're in, they in a box behind me, blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, what are you drinking? I, and I had like a pint of Stella or something because they only had Stella at this place. I never drink Stella. So I, I said, oh, it's apple juice. I fancy a large apple juice. And he said, no, it's beer. The manager can see that's beer. So I thought, fuck it, yeah, I'm getting yeah. steaming now. I just carried on drinking. The next day, we won 4-2. I set up two or scored one or something. And I thought, all right, I can get away
0: with it again. And would have been a so different that- story, though. If you had before, like, say you'd had a nightmare in that game, you'd have probably been straight in that office because they knew that you'd been out on the piss the night before. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like, from the outside at least, like hearing you and other Footballers talk about it It's almost like Like you say If things are going alright And you're still doing your job At that time Clubs were happy To kind of mm. Turn a blind eye to it And the culture of it And even if they Deep down knew That you were going out too much If you're performing For the club You're turning up to training And, and you're not late for training And you're not causing any Like Rifts in the squad mm. And this sort of thing Do you think that will kind of excuse it Do
1: you think that sort of had a negative effect on you finding sort of uh and recovery because you could drink and then perform quite to a high level it hadn't got to that stage where you would hit rock bottom i suppose
2: i think kind of yeah i i had to personally hit my rock bottom to recover i I, everyone's rock bottom is completely different i always Mm -hmm. say that when people say if they ask me for advice i was if people are not like my ex-wife and everyone around me was like saying, you need to stop drinking. But until I wanted to stop drinking myself, I wouldn't listen to a word they were saying. Mm. So you can tell any addict, you can tell anyone they need to do certain things, but unless they want to recover themselves or Mm. have their own self-care, it's not going to work. So I kind of, um, you know, in the football industry, I I, I wouldn't have spoken about my mental health. I wouldn't have spoken about my addiction during my playing career because I didn't want to jeopardize my my contracts or me playing or whatever it might be so what coming towards the back end of my career I just I wasn't enjoying it I felt like football was getting in the way of my drinking and it was kind of like it should have been the other way around but my profession should have become first and, it, and towards the back end of my career it wasn't um and I and suppose I was what,
1: re- sorry uh David what was that rock bottom like what was it that then was that sort of wow okay, this is hit me
2: now. I think probably, you know, I tried taking my life on three or four occasions and I wouldn't necessarily think that that was the the defining moment for me to get help because I was like, say, you know, I'd say to my ex, like, you know, um, I'll get help tomorrow. I'm not, I'm Mm. going to stop drinking. That would last about 24 hours before I had another, you know, bottle of red Mm. wine in my hand. So that, that didn't really work. So I think probably when I started to feel these emotions and these feelings, when I was sober, it was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was going to car parks. I was thinking, right, I was Googling how can I take my own life the, 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 the best possible way, the quickest way. And so when those thoughts were creeping in when I was sober, and I remember when I went to America and I, I spoke to one of my friends and I had like two or three drinks or whatever. And he was like, you change when you have a drink, don't you? And I was like, yeah, tell me what you think. And he told me and I, thought, and I said to him, I said, look, I've been thinking this for a while, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, gonna to check into rehab soon. I've had enough. I literally got back home and I checked into rehab. Um, and then from that moment on, I didn't turn back. So I knew at that point when I was going to have my last drink, it was really weird and mm. it was really bizarre yeah. that I thought, Do you know what? That's, this is the last time I'm going to drink. I need to change. And it's like a light bulb moment just switched on my body to think,
1: right, sort your shit out and let's crack mm. on. And is from that, that point, i have not really turned okay. back. So I know, like, were you struggling with depression at that, whilst drinking at that stage, where you... Yeah, I was I was literally,
2: you know, even I was spending a lot of days in bed, I was I was mm. in a bit of a I was in a pickle, I was in a dark moment for a long period of time. I think, you know, with the self medicating thing, I it was mm. you know, I was suffering probably from I was probably suffering from the first first marriage and I never dealt with those issues and then materialized into a lot bigger issues, blah, 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 over those years um and i just didn't get to grips with it and then i was you know i was just doing things i'd never do before and um and it just got a lot worse you know all the time and i was suffering obviously with mental health problems mm-hmm. and my addiction so it's not a really it's not a great combination let's yeah, yeah. so um, and
1: there'll, there'll be people on here listening There'll, be, you know i think there'll be people listening who have struggled with depression that will identify with some bits but i think that. In a good way, there'll probably be people listening that have never struggled with any mental health. And so, how do you, how would you explain depression to those people? Those fans that probably go to the game, think "fuck you, David Cottrell, go home, and go. I've never struggled with mental health. It's fine. We're all we you know. How do you explain it to them? What is depression? I suppose for you, um, I think depression for for me
2: was you know i found it really really difficult to get out of bed it was always a chore mm-hmm. to get out of bed so i was hanging on to things that have happened in the past i was put myself down i couldn't get out of them right and it was just getting worse and worse and worse my overthinking was then kicking in with obviously anxiety i was creating scenarios that not even real in my head and then i but then i was thinking i was in that moment which would me depressed and i just couldn't get out of it i nothing worse is when i hear a quote that was like man up or mm-hmm. fix up or do this and knows the nose of shit out of me um, but these people who have those views on on that, I would say, probably find some education surrounding mental health. Because if you're not going through it, then I bet you everything under the sun that someone in your family is. Mm. So, 100%. and and I think that even if they don't, even if you're fifty 55, 60 or whatever age you are just because you don't have depression now or certain mental health problems it's not gonna it doesn't mean that you won't it won't happen in like a year two years time mm. so it, i think education is the way forward i think the education of starting very young to know what mental health problems are to know what to n- know more about racism to know more about these certain things in schools is where it needs to happen i think You know, um, and if you've got a family member who who are suffering, then you should know exactly what they're going Mm. through and and speak about it because they need to have that safe environment that they can trust someone because they might look happy on the outside, but they're not, you know, they might not be in the inside.
1: And we spoke to a lot of guests that, in particular with depression, you know, the the depressed states are the really difficult stages and, and you get through that. But one thing that sort of lasts if you reach, get into recovery or, if you're if you find that you're doing well with your um depression is the sort of shame and guilt of you know for you it could be those suicidal thoughts and um attempts and stuff like that how do you deal with those shame and guilt you know as a dad of you know as a dad now thinking you mean that you mean do i have any shame or guilt of thinking about taking my own life yeah so a lot of a lot of people we speak to have been through similar stages. They'll say at that stage, it was horrendous. I've been through this really difficult stage and they'll do things that they would never normally do. So it could be with gambling, it could be, you know, spending family's money with drinking. It could be drinking, making difficult decisions. Um, And it's then when they find recovery, they're left with the uh, memories of what they might've done. And I know you spoke about, you've spoken before about being in uh, rehab, For your uh, your child's first birthday, is there moments like that? Do you find those sort of guilt feelings helpful in keeping you in recovery, or do do you still have to work on those things?
2: Yeah, I have to work on my recovery every single day. You know, I I speak to people from, you know, um, the fellowship there with AA, and so I speak to friends who are in the similar position as me, with Mm -hmm. they're on recovery for alcoholism and so i it's an everyday thing you know you don't just like oh right i've not drunk for Mm. 19 20 months or seven years whatever it might be you don't just switch off then it's an everyday i wouldn't it's an everyday routine i wouldn't say it's a struggle it's more of a struggle some days than others but i don't i sometimes think to myself about when i miss my daughter's first birthday it's kind of like well that's probably the best present because was it would it be she doesn't have a dad or does she have Mm. a dad who makes the sacrifices to be there for all their other birthdays so I I made sure that that was the only birthday that I was going to miss so I kind of tell myself that from the point of view of wanting to take my own life I personally don't look back I I don't really look back and think oh you know I'm embarrassed about taking my own life I I just look forward because you can't change the past you can only control what is now and you can't control what's in the future because all we have is now basically so I live literally day to day Obviously, mm. you must plan for the future, but what's the point in looking at the past? Because you can't change it. So I don't really look at that and think, oh my God, I'm embarrassed about it because it's done. It's, I can't change it. And if I've hurt anyone, again, I can only control now what we can do going forward. Do I, Have I hurt people that won't speak to me again? Yes. Um, and I can't change that. That's just the way it is. So now I must focus on myself to be the mm. best person that I can then to help other people.
1: And I suppose anyone that doesn't know 12-step stuff, uh, when you 're going through your twelve step recovery, they have things where you have to make your amends to people that you 've uh, hurt in your whilst you were drinking so I suppose you went through that sort of stuff to process that stuff and I think anyone i think anyone that has no knowledge on twelve step it 's always a good thing you know even if you 've got no addiction problems there 's some amazing little things that you get in twelve step that uh will help you in just general life and I think um I think there's one thing uh, that I want to ask. Compared to say myself or Sai, if we have, if we went into twelve step um, recovery, there's not the pressure on us to stay clean or stay sober is not ever going to be as much as the pressure on you. I suppose because you're more in the football public eye. Do you feel that pressure from if you were to relapse that people might go, oh well. It didn't work for David Cottrell. So maybe, you know, maybe it's not that good. Because you, you hear this, I know, with the founder, you know, there was a lot of pressure with him when he first went out talking about his um, recovery out in the public eye. Do you feel that pressure? Um,
2: not really. No, I don't really. No, I don't. I think um, it's like most things really, isn't it? When you, when you see things in the newspapers are kind of like... You you see a lot of negative stuff, so you hear mm. you hear the negative stories, but there's a there's a lot of success stories as well There are very famous people who are doing really, really well, who's been clean. You know, like Eminem is like, I don't know, eleven, twelve years cleaner and sober. so so yeah. so you you don't really hear the success stories because negativity sells in yeah, the newspapers. That's indeed. just that's just the way it's it is. Sad. Yeah, so um from that point of view, I don't feel the pressure of, of that, um, in the public domain. I think a lot of people are expecting me to fail that's what makes me drive forward to think well fuck you i'm not gonna fail so yeah. that's yeah. what kind of like i use that as like a, a positive to me because people expect me to fail people have expected me to fail all my life so it's not a new thing to me you know people wanted me to fail during football um on whatever it might be it's quite funny as soon as i retired the amount of people new people there, that that want to speak to me then because i've retired because i'm out of that profession they think that they're they can come and talk to me then to maybe try and get one over on I me. Mean, it was really bizarre. Yeah. It's like, as soon as I finished, everyone was like, well, oh, my God, you are actually normal. I'm thinking, well, I've always been that way. You just didn't give me the time of day because you thought I was an mm. arsehole because maybe yeah. you were jealous
0: or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's That must be so strange as well. Um, if you don't mind me asking, David, um, since that day where you said, like, you, you decided, right, I'm not going to drink again, have you, um, have you had any kind of relapses since then? No, from the time that I stopped, I didn't... Um,
2: the when I first... When I used to say, you know, oh, yeah, we're not going to drink again, blah, blah, blah. I didn't really want it for me. I'd still fucking continue to drink. <laughs> but from the time that I... So I'm now 19 months sober. From that time that I stopped drinking, when I went into rehab, I've not touched a drink
0: since. Wicked. That's amazing, mate. And then um, just to finish us off, obviously, not only have you... Uh, you know, you've got yourself sober and you've been working on yourself... And one of the things as we discussed on the football show one of the things i love about your social media is you post like a lot of positivity Mm. um and positive quotes um and like i'm not afraid to say like i've had times particularly like in the last couple of months where i've been struggling and things like that i'll see something maybe, maybe it's a quote on your social media or someone else's and it just gives you like a little i wouldn't even say a lift but it can give you a different outlook on how you're feeling um and i think sometimes that is so beneficial um so in your recovery you stayed at the was it the sporting chance clinic um is that yeah is that the one that tony adams is involved with yeah that's the one that tony adams set up yeah yeah so um what was the obviously you came out of there and then you've set up the david cottrell foundation um tell us a bit about the reasons behind why you set it up, where the idea came from and then obviously, you know, what it's about and what it does.
2: Yeah. So I, you know, when I started, um, cause when I th- first spoke about my mental health, of uh, about my mental health during my playing career, I did a, an interview with the BBC and I, I really, really wasn't expecting it to blow up as, mm. as much, but the guy, um, they contacted me about retiring and, and my, and what was going on and, I, was, you know, I'm speaking. i was speaking to this guy um, very closely. He's known me from the Wales set and I trusted him to do the right article or the right interview on it. And when we go into the meeting, he was like, oh, I'm, I'm really nervous about today." And I was like, "Thinking, why are you nervous? Because and what?" And he never, he never would say that. And I never, used, and I never thought that the story would be as big as it was. And he literally went all over the place about, you know, my mental health problems yeah. and and blah blah. blah and the amount of messages that i had right of saying i never knew you were going through that or other people have said you're always happy and friendly when you're around me mm. it's kind of like well oh okay then because i was happy and friendly you didn't mean that yeah. i was going home and li- i live with you by the way on a 24 hour basis you know what i mean it's kind of like weird so um and it and it was really weird because I, I kind of feel that with footballers they get, they get tarnished with like, with a certain brush it's kind of like well you know, if a footballer's got depression, it's kind of like, oh, man up, he's this, he's that. He's got he's all this got money. millions of pounds. He's, he's got, got millions guys. of pounds. Yeah, so why he depressed? Yeah. yeah, when Robin Williams was suffering with um, his his mental health problems, it's got, oh my God, how sad is that, what he was going through? So it's, and I'm not saying it's not sad because I love Robin Williams, but that just goes to show the difference of opinions on, like, footballers to then an actor, whereas an actor's got, he would have had more money than probably 80, 90% of footballers. Yeah. So... But anyway, that's the way it is. So when I when I did start speaking about my mental health, pro- uh, my mental health, that's when I thought, right? Uh, well, a guy that I know locally in Cardiff, he said, maybe we should, you know, set up something. I'm passionate about this. I've not dealt with mental health problems, but people in my family have, and he's always been about helping the community. So I thought, yeah, it's a good idea. I've always wanted to do something like that. How can we help people? So my main focus was not just helping professional athletes; it was about helping. People who don't have money to go to counselors Mm. don't have a safe environment to go anywhere, so I come up with the idea of, um, you know, having like a coffee shop where we can go talk and and listen and, and share our experience, kind of like the AA formula, but a lot more relaxed it's not kind of like you know you're allowed to have an open discussion of and we'd have people there to give feedback of maybe little tips of what they can do and and so on so we had these coffee shops we then had pt sessions of, of twice a week to kind of like create that healthy body healthy mind so that's kind of like the formula that we down went down with our fo- um, our foundation
0: that's amazing, amazing and i i you know i every now and again i'll pop on the website and have a look at the the different stuff because you do some is it like online uh sort of self-help and i think you said before you do some core like uh courses as well
2: yeah so i've got another business to the side of well my foundation is obviously to help people more locally um and we do you know with the meetings we've only got one set up in cardiff at the moment just before lockdown we were thinking about setting up a lot more but you know everyone's been in lockdown so we can't move forward like like most things in the world right now so um so I've got a business with um, a psychotherapist. We designed um, self-help courses. So instead of going to see a counsellor, it's kind of like you can go on your phone or your laptop mm. at home where you can have your own self-help, um, which get down to the bottom where, where your trauma is coming th- from, from From as when you were a child. It's got inner child stuff. It's got um, things about depression, anxiety, your You've got mindfulness on there it's got goal setting so it's got literally everything and we have we have things for children as well so we have like booklets work booklets that are going we've recently put them into schools they're very very cheap for for what we um for what we do and it's not really necessarily about the money for us we're trying to help as many people mm-hmm. as possible so you know we help schools with that um we've got teenage um courses on there as well so we have loads and loads of various things that we're we're looking to do and that's separate from my foundation that's called the crystal matrix which you can it's all on my bio on instagram etc
0: excellent that's amazing mate and um, look david thanks so much for just talking to us about your the issues you've had with everything and i wish you nothing but the best i know it's not always easy but uh, i commend you not only for you know winning your own battle with uh, alcohol uh, as i know personally just how difficult that is but also going on from there and trying to help other people. I think that's really uh, something to be proud of and commendable. It's incredible to see. Um, Jacob, thank you for joining me, mate, as well. No, thanks for having me. I loved it. And um, lastly, I'd just like to say this. If um, people watching or listening, if you or a family member is battling addiction or struggling with any mental health issues, uh, just know that you're not alone and uh, we're all in it together and you can get through it. Um, As a good friend of mine says to me, pretty regular keep on keeping on um, I will drop links to all our social media the David uh, Cottrell Foundation as well as Mind's Mental Health Charity, here in the description for the episode uh, we'll be back next Sunday for another episode of Ace Podcast Nations Mental Health in Sport and uh, spread the word remember to be kind help each other hashtag don't be a dick <laughs> and uh, until then I appreciate your time gentlemen and uh, we'll see you all next week Network.